Hello and welcome to the RT Podcast, where three of our editors take you around the art world. I'm your host, editorial associate Isaac Kaplan, joined by deputy editor Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Alex. And editorial associate Abigail Kane. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Abby. Okay, so on this week's show, it's a contentious election cycle, as everyone knows. The Republican National Convention kicked off uh, earlier this week in Cleveland. And amid this swirling of politics, artists are engaging with the process. So how do we think about political art, its impact, its importance? Then we're going to talk a little bit about art thefts and crimes, highlighting some curious cases and thinking about the ramifications of what it means when a work of art is stolen. What do we actually lose? And then finally, where in the world will we be drinking white wine this week? So, Abby, we've been seeing artists engaging with politics really overtly this election season. And there was one recent case involving the, prover- the, the not the proverbial, the real Trump wall. Right. So last week, the New York Times reported on this artist collective called T-Rut that started building Donald Trump's proposed wall. Not exactly on the border. It's like 20 yards in in California. Um, but they used a bunch of cinder blocks. They put a Trump campaign poster on one side and some wilting flowers, rotting fruit, um, some cleaning supplies to, I guess, indicate the economic issues that might result with um, cutting off immigration. And they sent a bill to the Mexican president. Wow, they went the whole way. How much was it? Yeah, um, it was $14,635.42. That's something, yeah. Thank you. I'm glad I got that exact number. (laughs) Um, Presumably the real wall would be a lot more expensive. The Mexican government's chance of paying for this wall is about the same as paying for that wall. But this collective is engaged with sort of Trump before, right? Right. So they achieved a little bit of internet fame last past fall because they bought an old Trump campaign bus on Craigslist Mm -hmm. and then modified it a little bit. They changed the slogan from uh, Make America Great Again to Make Fruit Punch Great Again. (laughs) Uh, And they've been driving it around to Trump. uh, Or actually, they they drove it around to caucuses around the country. Um, And I think... According to them, a lot of times people don't realize that it's not a Trump bus, so Trump supporters will start taking photos with it and then be like, hold on, that's not the slogan. Right. And then Trump haters actually also think it's a Trump bus and they like egg it or key it. They've had to start covering their bus up at night so it doesn't get <laughs> vandalized. <laughs> so have they said what specifically they're trying? I mean, this has got a lot of traction, right? This was written about right. in the New York Times, so they're obviously getting some press, which I guess is success in and of mm-hmm. itself. But have they sort of talked more broadly about what they were expecting what happened yeah i mean they talked a little bit more i think maybe the bus is a little bit more interesting than the wall i mean the wall is i would say pretty obvious they built a wall sort of in protest of how ridiculous this sounds and they made it short they want other artists to add on but the bus i think they've talked about it's sort of like political theater in the same way that donald trump does political theater it's Mm. sort of surreal and bizarre it also sort of blurs the lines right so trump supporters think it's a Trump bus. Trump haters think it's a Trump bus. And so it gets these reactions from people and then they slowly realize, wait a second, this isn't what we thought. Right. So, I mean, maybe Alex, you can weigh in here. I mean, there seems to be sort of a line here between, you know, what's the difference between a stunt and a work of art? Like, is this, is this something where the artists are like, yes, we got headlines, mission accomplished? Or is Mm -hmm. it like, no, we changed minds? Or is that sort of a strange binary to, to make? Well, I think, you know, even going back to a previous podcast where we discussed some of Ai Weiwei's engagements with the migration crisis, you know, certainly art that engages with politics has a role in bringing attention to these issues, especially when it garners press, like you're saying. You know, the extent to which it changes minds, I am not really 
sure, you know, a lot of these things go around among the same group of people that engage with art that are probably a little left-leaning. I think that the bus is more interesting in that regard, as, as Abby pointed out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I think then there's also a distinction to be made between art in the art world, conceptual art, for example, that has dealt with politics for a long time and kind of highlights issues around there, and more kind of activist practices like this one, which, you know, probably despite being written about in major publications isn't you know you're not going to see it in a kind of mainstream art world context anytime soon yeah i mean i think that there's also like a strange challenge sometimes when artists engage politically i mean i wrote about this this super pack that's being put together by um hank willis thomas and eric Gottesman. i mean i heard about it, i heard it again on wnyc mm-hmm. on friday i think it was so, so it's getting a ton of traction um it's this artist run super pack we've talked about it before but one of the things that when I was ta- writing about it, which was kind of interesting, was that they're going to commission artists to create ads and, you know, distribute them potentially across the whole country. And I think it's it's fair to say that the vocabulary of conceptual art or of art in general, contemporary art, can be very difficult for people. Mm-hmm. And how do you balance, like, creating a nuanced work of art with making sure that people don't feel alienated and confused and i don't think this is a new question i was reading and ann wagner reviewed um conceptual art britain which is on at the tate right now and she was talking about victor bergen's work where he put photographs of couples embracing around newcastle upon tyne underneath which he put the words what does possession mean to you seven percent of our population own 84 percent of the wealth and wagner kind of asked like did this make a difference that the end mark of this exhibition is when margaret thatcher was elected and she doesn't really answer that question so i think it's hard it's hard to be like does you know can we can we create a poll you know data drive the answer to this question of course not it's going to always be kind of nebulous and difficult oh well and i think to your point too the the kind of projects that exist outside of the art world have a little bit more freedom to do things in a way that maybe like, like you said aren't, aren't as nuanced as they would be codified in a museum or gallery you know, even the, the super PAC, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think their kind of position is one where they're not directly tied to a candidate or a specific issue. So like, yeah, they've been that's ha- a kind of, you know, art worldy, very art historically oriented kind of lack of commitment or not wanting to kind of engage with something directly or tie oneself to something directly. I think they are. It, I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused. I, I'm pretty sure they have to, because of the rules of super PACs, eventually advocate for a candidate, but they're going to do that in ways that aren't sort of con- conventionally understood as how it's and well, how it's done. And the work in the exhibition itself, which is on at Jack Shaman Gallery right now, isn't ad- like it's not advocating for a candidate. Well, also, I mean, I, on the WNYC uh, segment that you were talking about earlier, one of the artists asked if it had to be a candidate that was running now or a past candidate, which is mm. a question he was like, I have no idea. And I don't know if this is like written about in the regulations or not, because who, what other super PAC would want to, you know, right. They're, they're actually, a candidate that they're making the, the political process their medium. And I think this is interesting because they're interrogating the laws of super PACs, which you can interrogate a number of ways. You can interrogate them legally by bringing a lawsuit. You can interrogate them through protest, you know, standing outside the Supreme Court and railing against Citizens United. And you can interrogate them through art and exploring sort of the limitations and boundaries of what what this means and what can be done um, in a situation like that, which is really interesting. Yeah, just going back to one of your earlier comments, Isaac, about like this art potentially being something that's difficult to understand, you know, by people who aren't part of the art world. I was reading this weekend about the flag that read, a man was lynched by police yesterday, which is a work by Dred Scott, riffing off of a flag that said a man was lynched yesterday, which the NAACP hung up outside their building in like the 1930s, I believe. And um, 
that was a work that's part of this For Freedom show, but it's been getting huge traction. I mean, the New York Times wrote a think piece about it. People were really upset about it because it was taken to a protest, I think, in Union Square. Mm -hmm. And that seems like it's getting a lot of outside of the art world traction. Right. And, and I think that that's a great point, too, because... To my mind, this work is best when it can actually be mobilized. Like, mm -hmm. you can't hang a work of political art in a gallery and be like, mission accomplished. You know, like, bringing it to a protest. And that's an incredibly powerful work. Um, and yeah. Dred Scott has also done, the artist who created it, has also fused the boundaries that I was sort of talking about earlier, like legal and, and artistic. Because he was part of a group that burned a flag on the steps of the Capitol in 1989. And this led to this sort of huge Supreme Court decision overturning the flag burning and affirming free speech in, in a powerful way. So, so yeah, like I think that it's wrong to say that artists can't like really walk across these boundaries in sort of like really interesting ways. No, I think you're exactly right, Isaac. I mean, bringing, bringing that flag to a protest, bringing things outside of the art world, finding ways for art to kind of communicate with groups that aren't kind of generally used to engaging with it is kind of the only way for us to, to see these practices, uh, whether political or otherwise, you know, just art, art in general, kind of gain that wider resonance in the world. And I mean, even interestingly, Jack Shaneman had to take down the flag because of a, a landlord restriction in which you couldn't hang it outside, you can't hang things outside of your building. So, you know, not only is maybe the gallery not the right place for art that engages with the wider world, but sometimes it's not allowed to be there either. Now we're going to talk about something a little different, but also important. So art theft is actually a booming business in the United States. You don't really may not know about this. Well, around the world, around not the just world. in the U.S. Sorry, I don't want to take credit away from these thieves. They're global. They're international. And Abby, there was like a shocking number. Something like 50,000 artworks get stolen per year. And the value of work stolen is like what? Like a like billions, according to the FBI. According to the FBI. I don't know where they get those numbers, but. Right, and I mean, it being a booming business is maybe a misnomer because whether or not these people are able to sell the works after the fact is a open question. That is right. a good point, something we're going to discuss in a little bit. So there's a little, there's a difference between maybe the way we perhaps imagine art thieves. I always imagine them looking kind of like George Clooney, but I don't know why. That's a, yeah, that's. They're good. They could be good looking, you know, very, very talented. Um, but actually, they're they're not. They're not. Good. They're not. <laughs> they don't look like they're not good looking. <laughs> they don't look like George Clooney. They're they're more like you know, quote unquote, common criminals than than one would think. Right. Well, I think the I think the distinction is that there's like two kinds of art theft, art thefts generally. There's the people who are just career criminals, and they end up deciding that art would be a good thing to steal. And then there are people who just steal art who maybe are a little bit more. Uh, in tune with the art world. I guess how well-dressed they are is up for debate in either case. Well, that's for hire. It's probably the latter category. Yeah, and I think we see kind of these criminals making mistakes because they don't actually understand either like what the work is that they're stealing or how the art market values work and how it can be sold. Yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of two general scenarios in which work is stolen and then has to go into hiding for a long period of time before it, you know, gets... The, the heat dies down or whatever they say in criminal lingo <laughs> and then even still you know it's being sold on a black market whereas some goods on a black market have much higher prices i think art on the black market is is significantly less expensive the uh, kind of alternative scenario is uh situations in which also less than upstanding individuals decide that they really want a particular work of art and they you know 
would would have a group of criminals steal it and keep it in a out of sight place but that's probably a little bit more rare yeah i think they said i read a i read a long new york times magazine article about this the other day and yeah commissioned theft is definitely a thing that people think occurs but it hasn't been they haven't been able to prove a lot of cases of it and i think also in that article they kind of talk about how resold art gets like 10 percent of its value yeah i think seven to ten percent ten percent and yet you see these headlines because they make good headlines of like high profile thefts where it's you know 50 million dollar painting stolen it's like well in a sense maybe but in another sense no because there's no way that the painting's ever gonna attract that much value and it's sort of sometimes not dealt with in the substance of pieces that kind of talk about these these right and well it sounded to me like oftentimes also art's not even stolen for the resale value to like a black market player. It's stolen because they think they're gonna be able to ransom the museum. Cause mm-hmm. like, I think there've been a few really high profile cases. Like apparently the Tate Gallery in like 2000, early 2000s, they paid something like $5.6 million to secure the return of these two Turners that got stolen in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a really, really rare case. Usually galleries don't, or usually museums don't do that. But now every art theft is like, art thief is like, oh, we're going to get millions from the museum if we ransom them. Yeah, it's also interesting because there's debate over how much work is stolen because not all of it is reported. Like you're under no obligation if you're a private collector to report a stolen work of art. But if you're an institution, which is why it's so strange when thieves steal from institutions, obviously you have to tell the insurer of the work, mm-hmm. you have to tell the who lent it, you, you know, it becomes a huge public thing, the police get involved. So it's sort of like stealing from a museum is kind of you're, you're you're in trouble and we you know abby we wrote about a few art thefts that went pretty terribly wrong and one of them was did involve a museum involved a jewish museum right so we compiled like eight thefts that went horribly wrong and uh i think my favorite was the one with the jewish museum at this theft was actually successful initially so there was a huge cocktail party at the museum and the next morning they realized that a mark chagall painting had gone missing and there was no sign of it, um, no sign of who took it. And then they received a letter signed by the International Committee for Art and Peace that said, you can get this work back as soon as there's peace between Israel and Palestine. Noble ob- goal. <laughs> maybe not the best way to attain that goal. I, you know, the Jewish Museum, maybe their diplomatic chops are <laughs> more impressive than we imagined. Um, but anyway, the, apparently this is like one, I mean, this is one of like a handful of cases where the work has been stolen for political reasons and political reasons alone. The last one was like in the, the early 2000s. Someone stole the scream and then some abortion rights activists in Norway were like, we stole it and we're not giving it back till you meet our demands. And then it turned out they didn't even steal the work, but. Uh, well, I think it's mm. giving a lot of credit to museums. To <laughs> <laughs> I know. We're Which talking is, about muse- like art and politics. People really think that museums maybe wield They can power. change the world in, in the popular <laughs> imagination, I guess. But anyway, the reason this art theft at the Jewish Museum was a failure was that, you know, eight months later, this work showed up in a mailroom in Topeka, Kansas, because, you know. They gave up so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I know. They only gave them eight months, which is really not a long time if you think about the... peace process is is ongoing. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we're we're kind of laughing about it, and it, like, these bungled art thefts, some of them are incredibly funny. But there is also sort of a component to, beyond the money and beyond um, the incompetence, that you know, the, the theft kind of galvanizes both the public imagination in like important ways, and also kind of can really rob people of of like important works of art. And, and the Mona Lisa is famous 
because it was stolen. Right, so in 1911, a handyman walked into the Louvre and walked out with the Mona Lisa under his smock. And the Mona Lisa wasn't super famous at that point. The reason he walked out with that particular painting was that it was small enough to fit under his shirt. This is a common theme, by the way, that <laughs> people, like a few of the artists we wrote about were involved people just stealing works because they could fit in like a backpack. Anyway, right. sorry. Or failures because they stole works that were too big to fit in their car. Yeah. And the publicity surrounding this theft of the Mona Lisa actually gave it a lot of its staying power, which people don't know now. Yeah, I think people, you know, now people flock to it because they think it's like the most important, most most famous work in the world. And they think that might be because like a group of art historians got together in like a dark room and just decided that. But no, it's be it's partly at least because of this this theft. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the Mona Lisa side, I think one of the funniest kinds of art theft is when the thieves think that they could recreate an artwork similar enough to <laughs> fool museum goers or at least security guards for a while. There was a great one in your piece of a, a Salvador Dali painting, and it happens all the time, but, you know, uh, most of the time, you know, as, as much as we would support creative expression by, by anyone in the world, uh, they don't quite live up to the original, do they? No, not at all. That one, that's my favorite story by far from the <laughs> research that we did. So there's this, there was this Dali sketch hanging in Rikers Island. Which in and of itself is like, what? And it, yeah, and it, it just gets stranger from there. It was an apology because Dali was supposed to teach an art class at Rikers Island and then he missed it because he was sick. So he sent them a sketch wow. anyway so the sketch is hanging up in the in the prison and four guards decide all right we're gonna steal this so they set off a fire alarm they take the work everything goes smoothly except the fake Dali sketch that they put in its place is just terrible it was so bad people who saw the, the fake thought it had been drawn by a kid it looked like something that someone was gonna hang up on the refrigerator also, the worst thing was this this painting had originally been framed in this like beautiful mahogany gold frame, and they just stapled the fake one to the back of the case. <laughs> That's just it just bad. wasn't well thought out. My favorite, actually, my favorite part of this whole thing, too, was like when they figured out it was the four guards and they put them all on trial, they had this whole testimony where one of them was like, yeah, I was really worried the work wasn't being good, the fake wasn't going to be good enough, so I made someone show it to me so I could approve it. Wow. Wow. This is just I don't blunders. Know. Yeah. Blunders terrible but good good thing that the work was recovered i mean it's not i guess that's the boon of bad bad art thieves right you get the work back all right now time for you guys to tell me about where you're going to be seeing real not forged uh work in the art world this week uh abby i think i'm gonna head over to the whitney with some artsy friends and by artsy i mean from artsy the company not people who you just apply that adjective to. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess they might, <laughs> they might be both. We do uh, have a lot of artists here. Yeah, yeah we yeah. do. Uh, to see the Stuart Davis show. Cool. Alex? This weekend, I'm going to head over to MoMA PS1 to see 40, which is an exhibition organized by PS1's original founder, Alana Heiss. Um, it's kind of celebrating the the 40th anniversary of the institution, you know, which has been kind of radically pushing forward new art in New York over those four decades. But in a shift for the museum, at least compared to what you're usually used to seeing there, it's more historical artists that were kind of key in its original first few years. So people like Carl Andre, John Baldessari, Nancy Holt, Dennis Oppenheim, etc. It's supposed to be fantastic. I'm really looking forward to it. And I am going to the Met Breuer to see the Diane Arbus exhibition, which I'm super excited for. It's been getting like, all of, I've only heard good things about it. Um, and it's like a huge survey of the artist's work. I think there's more than, a, yeah, there's more than a hundred photographs. And obviously she's like a great 
photographer of New York City. And you like New York City. I like New it's York City. It's the only place you like. It's the only place, well, <laughs> that's not true, but maybe we'll save that for another podcast. Anyway, thank you to our guests, Alex and Abby, for joining us here. Please remember to rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. Our producer is Joe Sykes, and our theme music is by Broke for Free. See you guys next time.